We're looking this morning at a subject called the joy of Advent. And by Advent, I mean we're moving from shadow to light. What was, in terms of the Old Testament, now new in, what different in the new. And that's the first point in your bulletin outline, the night of the Old Covenant. Think about this. Verse 1 of our text puts it this way. The law is only, that's an important word, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Say what you will about twilight, that time of night, as the sun sinks below the horizon, darkness begins to replace the brightness of light. And as it does so, shadows increase. Details, clarity in what we see decreases. Well, you know, the same holds true in the spiritual realm. True, if the only Bible we had was the Old Testament, we would still be blessed. Still be blessed. That said, with the coming of the New Testament, the New Covenant, shadow gives way to glorious, glorious light. What is shadow? Well, shadow is a silhouette of reality. But one cannot attain true nourishment from silhouette. There are benefits to the shadow. I want you to think about that a bit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then, that is when he gets to glory, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know even as I am fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Same could be said of Israel. Paul writes concerning them in Romans 9, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory. The covenants. The receiving of the law. The temple worship. The promises, theirs are the patriarchs. From them, trace the human sense, uh, ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever to be praised. Amen. Romans 9, verse 4 and 5. Benefits from whatever light God gives to certain people. I could put it this way. Shadows... Um, they're not nothing. Shadows are not nothing. They are some things. They point to a reality that is not fantasy. They predict what is and what is to come. 
They give limited perception, but they still teach faith, hope, anticipation for what is to be. But as good as a picture is or a shadow, it's a poor reflection of reality. Here's my picture this morning. Cut it out of the mag out of the newspaper. It's a picture of peaches. Well, aren't they they look good, right? <laughs> Yummy. But you can't eat that, can you? It doesn't compare to the reality. The beauty of the reality. Shadow reality. Shadow Old Testament reality in the coming of the New Testament and in particular the person of Christ. Anyone looking for a bite from the peach to satisfy an empty stomach would be sorely disappointed and frustrated to only bite into the shadow. <laughs> Anyone want to eat the paper this morning? <laughs> We would consider that to be woefully inadequate to satiate our hunger. So the author of our text indicates that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, think about this, with its animal sacrifices was like that when it comes to satisfying the need for sins to be atoned for and our guilty conscience cleansed. Look at verse 1. For this reason, it, that is the law and its covenant, can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Then the latter part of the verse, verse 2, mentions feeling guilty for one sin even after the animal sacrifices had been made. And that's because the conscience was still dirty and not cleansed by the blood sacrifice of bulls and goats. Verse 4. Shadow, shadow, shadow. It is an inherent flaw in a shadow to accomplish only what the reality can do. What if I had four pictures of fruit, 12 pictures of fruit, 100 pictures of fruit, you can multiply it ad infinitum. But they would still remain a shadow and would not be as good as the real deal in terms of satisfying our need for hunger. Shadows just cannot compare to the succulent reality of the Georgia peach the real fruit. Now our text bears this out. Verse 1 tells us the animal sacrifices of the law, here's the way it's worded, were repeated endlessly year after year. But because they were simply the shadow of the good things to come, it made no difference how many animals came under the knife. Look at verse 4. It was impossible for their blood to take away sins. 
I want you to note all these terms in this text. Look at verse 1. Not the realities can never make perfect. Repeated endlessly. Verse 1. Verse 3. An annual reminder of sin. Verse 4. Impossible to take away sins. The writer is really building a strong case. It's a mathematical truism that 10 times 0 is still what? 0. <laughs> but so is 1,000 times 0. And go on and add whatever. A proliferation of shadows will never produce the results of just one reality. And verse 14 says, Because by one sacrifice he... Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You got all these animal sacrifices, shadow, 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 shadow. They accomplish zero. Thousands, just think of the thousands of animals from the Old Testament time, even up into the New Testament time, that were slaughtered in terms of atonement, to make them atonement, and their atonement capability is zero. And then you have Jesus come along on his cross and he has one sacrifice which is himself. And he makes perfect forever all those that trust him. Well, we might ask then, what good were the animal sacrifices? All that, all that time. Two things. First, verse 3. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. The bulls, the goats that lost their lives were not sacrificed to satisfy the bloodthirsty whim of the worshiper. They covered the sinner's sin for another year, but when the year's end came around, people recalled by memory that they were sinners still, needed forgiveness still, were still in the darkness of a dirty conscience and a sinful life. The, the, this these animal sacrifices were a reminder. At the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, Paul taught, My brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Acts 13, verse 38, 39. And that includes all those animal sacrifices. You know, it is said that there were so many <clears throat> animals slaughtered on the Day of Atonement in Jerusalem that the blood running out of the temple uh, area into the Kidron uh, River that flows from the top of uh, Mount uh, Zion to the valley below would actually turn red. There was so much blood. And just think about that. All of those animals, zero atonement for sin. In Hebrews 9, our author describes the procedure on the Day of Atonement, which came about one just one time a year. And on that day, only the high priest was permitted to enter the most holy place, but never without blood, the scripture says. Verse 8 and following our text, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration of, for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices 
being offered, notice these next words, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Were not able. He goes on. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Hebrews 9, verse 8 through 10. But here again, I want you to think of it. A yearly sacrifice by Aaron and his progeny was a yearly reminder that animal sacrifices and all, still the sin remained. Still the sin remained. Secondly, the Old Covenant and its appropriate animal sacrifices was preparatory for that one lamb coming who could take away the sins of the world. Let me read it for you from Galatians. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3, 22 and following. How does the Bible describe the period of the law? It's called an old, the Old Covenant, yes. But it describes it here as a dungeon in which people were incarcerated. The writer says, locked up until faith should be revealed. John put it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him, and he cries out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is, the Father's, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 1, verse 14 through 18. It's again the difference, brethren, between shadow and reality. Shadow and reality. The difference between night and day. Isaiah foretold the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Isaiah 9, verse 2. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the land to a man, to a man, not a creature was stirring. Why? They were locked up. Locked up. How so? Mankind, after the fall, existed in pitch black, in darkness, then with the coming of the Old Testament, candles and then oil lamps 
Shadow still, all at best. Think about that. Even the approved animal sacrifices had lost their mitigating effect. God through Malachi says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. Malachi 1 verse 10. Such was the sin of the worshipers. Such was the inadequacy of the animal sacrifices. They're accomplishing zero. They're accomplishing nothing. But then God adds, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 1, verse 11. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen because the lightning is going to flash. The rheostat is going to be cranked upward. The incandescent glows brighter. And the sun of righteousness, S-U-N of righteousness, will burst upon the sea. John put it this way. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John 1 verse 9. All hell trembled at that and all heaven rejoiced. Redemption's promised day had arrived. Paul writes it this way, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Solomon writes, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Proverbs 4, verse 18. Jesus put it this way, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. John 12, verse 46. When we have the full reality, not just a picture, we can see that the full-orbed will of God is made clear. That what we're believing in is not a figment of our imagination or a facsimile, a shadow, but the reality. John 8 verse 12 says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verse 12. Stupendous thing that God would come into our world in the form of a human being. And in that coming, demonstrate the truth of light and life and the ending of darkness for all who will believe. That said, 
There was a night before the dawn of the new covenant. Verse 9 says, Therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll, in the book. And I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10, verse 5 through 7. Wait a minute. How can the writer say that God did not desire such sacrifices and offerings? Verse 8 says, the law required them to be made. And if that's so, how can, how come with burnt offerings and sin offerings, God was not pleased? It seems to us that what God ordained, he desired. And <coughs> what he stipulated as the way to approach him in worship pleased him when the worshiper complied. Well, the answer to this seeming dilemma lies in the shadow versus the reality, which is what we've been studying. Shadow versus reality. We all know about these things. When I was a young boy, what I wanted most for Christmas was a BB gun. <clears throat> Dad, I want a BB gun. But like the comedy movie, The Christmas Story, Mother said, as the mother said to Ralphie in the movie, a BB gun, no way, you'll shoot your eye out. So my dad drew out on a board the outline of a rifle, and then he cut it out using his jigsaw. And I played hunter and warrior with that wooden toy rifle. That's what my father provided, but it was not his desire. He was simply complying with my limitations as a boy and golf with an adventurous spirit. You want to go hunting? Okay, I'll, I'll get you a gun. And he made one out of wood. But as I grew from boyhood into young manhood, my father gave me a rather sophisticated pellet gun that shot real lead made real dents in empty cans and broke real glass bottles on the target range. And when my skills matured to the point of being able to shoot the barn rats, the pellet gun was able to accomplish what the wooden toy was incapable of accomplishing. Suddenly, the real rifle served a real purpose that the wooden replica or shadow could not. Well, Israel, in the dispensation of law, was given a way to approach God in peace. This way was through the offering up of animal sacrifices. But, being the shadows that they were, these sacrifices never had the desirable effect of atoning for sin. They covered the sin, but they didn't remove it. They had a cleansing effect outwardly, but they never cleansed the guilty conscience. It was like my wooden toy. They went bang, bang, bang. But they never put 
a dent in the real rats that putrefied my soul's dwelling. The inadequacy of these sacrifices did not please God. They were the forfeiture of animal life for human life, hardly worthy of a comparison. And they required an ongoing, never-ending bloodbath that flowed from the altar down the Kidron Valley. But quantity is not quality. The hymn writer puts it this way, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. How true, how true. Now enter Jesus Christ, Son of God, preexistent before time, yet in the fullness of time, born of a woman, verse 5, in a body prepared for him, not a shadow of a man, but a true human being, not an animal for a man, but a real human flesh and blood, not a dumb creature, perfect only externally as to physical defects, but as one Peter describes, a lamb without blemish or defect, 1 Peter 1, 9. In the definition of Hebrews 7, verse 26, such a high priest meets our need. Well, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath, the oath taken by God, which came from the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 7, 26 and following. And so our text tells us, verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Wow. Once for all. And in this reality, we finally hear the approving benediction of God the Father for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased well pleased 2 Peter 1 verse 17 What are the implications, finally, of Advent and God's gift of his Son? Let me just state them for you. Number one, we, the recipients of God's repentance and faith in Christ, verse 10, have been made holy through his sacrifice. Do you ever think that you as a sinner could be viewed by God as made holy, as being holy. 
That's a hard concept to grasp if we know our own hearts. We're not holy, but we were made holy through his sacrifice. Secondly, in contrast to the never-ending sacrifices of animals in the Old Covenant, those same sacrifices which can never take away sins, verse 11, Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, in offering himself, offered but one sacrifice, never to be repeated again. Verse 14. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You know, if something is perfect, we, we use that term kind of casually at times, but if something is perfect, you don't want to mess with it. If you alter it, by either adding to it or taking away from it, you've now destroyed its perfection, right? You can't improve upon perfect. Perfect is perfect. And our scriptures are telling us that the sacrifice of Christ was so effectual that it made perfect forever those who are being made whole the foundation stone upon which our holiness is acquired. And that's the third point. A perfect sacrifice produces a perfect result. Look at verse 17. The sin and the guilt has been so thoroughly dealt with that God says of the believer, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Wow, what a verse. And with that forgiveness, verse 18, there is no longer any sacrifice. It means it's not needed. It's not there anymore. What does that say about Rome's view of the Mass? Every Sunday, they say it, they admit it. It is a re-sacrificing of Christ in the Mass. But here we have it very clearly put out in the Scripture. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. There is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Verse 18. Again, I... I <laughs> I put it to you. If something is perfectly done, perfectly done, which it was in Christ's own sacrifice, if it's perfectly done, do you really want to mess with it? If you mess with it, you've ruined its perfection. Fourthly, the forgiven and cleansed believer has a purchased confidence, verse 19 of our text, to what? To enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his body, through his flesh. 
You know what it's referring to, don't you? It's referring to the old tabernacle of Jewish days. <clears throat> they had an outer room, which was called the holy place. And there was an incense altar set in there. And the high priest could go in there and offer incense, and the incense represented, as the smoke went up, it represented the, the prayers of the people outside. They're praying while their priest is in there offering incense. But then past that curtain, there was another curtain, and that led into a place called the Most Holy Place, where the Ark of the Covenant was established. A box, a golden box, in which the rod of Aaron was, and the tables of the law were put inside of that. And the cherubim were mounted on top, and their wings touched in the middle. And the priest would come in and make atonement one time a year, on the Day of Atonement. He would sprinkle blood on that particular area, and it would symbolize the fact that the sins of the people were atoned for for another year. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we enter the most holy place. Now, firstly, you and I would never be allowed to enter the most holy place, right? It would have to be our representative, our high priest. So we enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, which is a new and living way open for us. You've got to go past that curtain through the curtain that is his body. That's what he's accomplished. His sacrifice. Not animals anymore. But the living Son of God in human form. And so, verse 22 says, Our hearts have been sprinkled. That's the idea of that, that blood again. Our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Simply, the principle is this. When the sin is gone... The guilt that it produces is gone. Verse 12, since Calvary's sacrifice, Christ is seated the great Savior and ruler of the universe at the right hand of the Father, the seat of authority, the seat of all power. So what remains to be done is for his enemies to be made his footstool. And that, that's the period in which we're living right now. What's it going to be for you? Christ as a friend and savior and a liberator from death and hell, or Christ with his foot on your neck, crushing you into submission and judgment? There's your two options. God has not brought his son to the cross and death as an exercise in options for salvation from which you may choose. Choose Christ and be saved. Don't choose Christ, you're lost. That's it. There's no other option. Jesus declared, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
but, here it is, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. John 3, 17 and 18. Something marvelous and wonderful and gracious has to be done to you and to me for us to be saved. But you know, nothing has to be done to you or me to be lost. We just have to be who we are by nature. What's that? Sinners. Born with a sinful nature. I need something to happen to me to be saved. I need nothing to happen to me to be condemned all the way to hell. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. And that person is found in Jesus Christ alone. Are you saved this morning or are you already condemned this morning? One of the two is all the truth. It's either or. We're told in scripture to flee from the wrath to come. Flee from it. Don't dibby-dabble, dibby-dabble, dibby-dabble with sin. Don't be thinking, you know, I've got, I'm going to live my life and then when I'm old and gray, then I'll come to Christ. No, you won't. You won't. Because guess what? Faith and repentance and coming to Christ are all the gifts of God to his people. And if you stick your finger in the eye of Christ all of your life, say, just wait a minute, just wait a minute, just wait a minute, just wait a minute. I have my life to live. I want to do this, and I want to go here, and I want to experience that. And when I'm old and great, I'll get around to you, Jesus. No, you won't. Because God will not grant you faith. He will not grant you repentance. He will not draw you into the presence of Christ saving faith. That's why the author Paul says, today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't do that. You're not guaranteed tomorrow and you're not guaranteed a long life. You're not guaranteed repentance and faith when your hair is gray you're not guaranteed anything except condemnation if you die in your sin so if you hear his voice today says Paul don't harden your heart Israel did that what does Paul say they all perished in the Oh, they thought, I'm, we're going to make it to the promised land. Well, they got right up to the door of the promised land. They got right up to the border. And then the scripture says, they refused to enter because of what? Unbelief. Just couldn't cause their feet to cross the border and take God at his word. So God turned them right around, shipped them back out into the wilderness, and that whole generation perished in the wilderness, never made it to the promised land. Now wait a minute. 
Weren't they the people that God rescued out of Egypt in the Exodus? Yeah. They were brought out of bondage in the physical sense of Egypt, but they never left the bondage of their own sin. They left no idolatry behind. They took it with them. The golden calf, you remember all of that. They refused to enter into the promised land. Oh, there, there's giants in that land. I'm not, we don't want to go in there. They'll kill us. We're outgunned, God. You want us to go cross the Jordan in there? I don't think so. The scripture says they refuse to enter because of their unbelief. And so God said, okay, you refuse me, you refuse to obey me, you can just go right back into the desert where you belong. And they did, and they died, and they never entered. It was left to the younger generation. Praise God. God worked in the younger generation's heart. And they entered into their you can come right up to the door of salvation, right up to the boundary line, and refuse to step across. May the Lord grant you faith, the faith that makes you step across, the faith that draws you by his power to come across, come into the promised land. How about tasting and see if the Lord is good? He is good, but you don't believe he's good. But if you'll just walk across the line, if you'll taste, you'll find out how good and gracious God is. Our Father, we thank you for your word. How precious <clears throat> is today. <clears throat> today is the truth of it. How thankful we are that you drew us by your Holy Spirit into your kingdom. I read in the scripture of Abraham, the great man of faith. Yeah, but where did he start out? He and his father, Tira, we are told in the scriptures, were idolaters, God-haters. They had reduced God to idols, to things of their own imagination. But you reached down and you touched Abraham, and you called him, and you granted him faith to follow, and he went, and you showed him the promised land, and he entered the promised land all because of your grace in doing. And everyone sitting here this morning who knows Jesus as Savior, we've entered into your kingdom the same way. We've come by faith and repentance, but not our own faith and not our own repentance. You, these have been the gifts of God. There was a time when we refused to step across the line and enter into the promised land. But you drew us. You didn't give up on us, and we thank you for that. Now there may still be some here today that they're lost. They have no time for God. It's just a kind of a religious thing. They think that by their own works or their own deeds or their own coming to church, putting money in the offering plate, singing hymns, whatever, that that somehow has meritorious influence on you. Help them to see none of that is true. The only one that has meritorious influence is the Lord Jesus Christ and his own sacrifice. The perfect Lamb of God shedding his blood, giving his life for his people in their place. 
the perfect for the imperfect, the sinless for the sinner. And that's what salvation is all about. God saving his people. Lord, thank you for your great grace. Help us today to really latch on to these things and to praise you and thank you and be so appreciative for what has been done on our behalf. We pray for our children this morning. We pray for our family and friends who don't know you. They're still in the darkness. Light has not come to them. It's around them. We live in the country of the, of the gospel, but it hasn't come into their hearts. So it does them no good. No good. I pray, Lord, that you will grant that light in the heart for their own good and your glory. We pray these things.